reason it's a privilege for me to introduce Mark is because I'm not usually here when Mark is. Mark has been here numerous times over the last uh, six years uh, to preach, to be with our congregation, uh, and uh, has become a, a good friend of our church, and we're really, really thankful to be able to have Mark here. Mark is, I'm going to get this right, he is the Robert L. McClellan Professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He's also the academic dean uh, of the seminary uh, and was just telling me before our gathering that, um, that the seminary, and this is probably true not only for RTS, but Covenant and Westminster and other institutions doing some very exciting things to make good theological education accessible to folks with limited resources. It's an incredibly expensive proposition to, to be a residential student at a residential seminary. And RTS is, um, is working to make good theological education uh, available to uh, increasing numbers of, of students. Um, Mark is married to Adele, and they have four children. I should have memorized this. William, Evan, Mark Jr., and Anne. And I want to read something from one of Mark's books. Um, We have two of your books here. They're for sale. Um, We didn't know how many to to secure, so if you would like one, um, there is a place out there for you to let us know that if they should all sell, which they had better. I don't want to be... (laughs) embarrassed. Um, so we, we can get them to you if you'd like to have a copy and we do sell out. But this is from um, Mark's book entitled Transformed by Praise, the Purpose and Message of the Psalms. And Mark writes this, to meditate is to think deeply. To meditate is more than thinking. To meditate is to think deeply. To meditate is to think reflectively about the Word of God. It is to take the Word of God and turn it over and over in your mind, probing the Word for its significance, asking how it applies to your life, pondering the kind of personal transformation that the Word is to produce within within you. One of your goals in meditating is an increased ability to live in keeping with the instructions you are meditating on. Mark, um, come. And um, with God's Spirit helping you, help us to think deeply. Well, it's always a delight to be here. And, uh, you know, usually I don't like to correct people, but I, I'm really going to enjoy correcting Mike about one thing. I'm not the academic dean anymore. No, I, I, I am not the academic dean anymore. No, I, 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 uh, I tendered my resignation, oh, Probably be about back in December, and as of June 1, I, I passed the love on to Dr. Swain. You did? Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to correct you well, that I am no longer an administrator. And, and no, brother, that I am thrilled to be corrected. I'm well, I am um, probably you. about eight years ago, our academic dean left suddenly. He actually hired me twice. He hired me in Orlando, and he hired me in California when I used to teach out there. And so we we went way back. And he left suddenly, and so our president at that time asked me if I could step in and just on a temporary basis be the academic dean. I said, Frank, I can do anything for six months. And uh, seven years later, I said, and it it was quite interesting. I had been uh, about... That was probably in December, not this December, a December ago. About a month before that, I was talking to the president, and I said, I'm not of age to retire, but I am of age to see the end. And so I'm starting to think, how do I want to spend my time and energy with the years that I have left 
Um, and I said, I just don't see administration in that picture. And I just left it at that. And then I, I went down to Fort Lauderdale. I was involved in a, um, in a colloquium and just Old Testament scholars sitting around uh, the table for a couple of days over a weekend, just talking Old Testament stuff. And as I was driving home, um, I just said, now's the time. And there were a couple of other things going on at RTS that made it work just perfectly. So I was driving home over the weekend, and Monday morning, first thing I did was I went to the president, and I said, here's my resignation. You know, I just, I want to spend my time teaching, and because I could only be in the classroom half time. And uh, so I'm, I'm back in the classroom full time and able to write again and uh, able to do things like this. So... Uh, I am delighted to say, actually, if the truth be told, when I left pastoral ministry, and Mike, you'll get this, when I left pastoral ministry, um, the seminary had to call me about three times to persuade me to come, because I was really content to be in the pastorate. But if there was one thing that didn't suit me as a pastor, and it was a congregation about this size where I, I, I didn't have a staff, I... I I was it, you know, and uh, but it was the administrative side. I, I it just never really. It, and when you're the only pastor, I, I know what he does. He does a lot, a lot behind the scenes. And I'm sure you're very appreciative of his ministry. There's a lot to it, a lot more to it than uh, half an hour in front of you on Sunday morning preaching a sermon. I mean, 40, 40 minutes to an hour, 40 minutes to an hour. Hour and a half. So, but it, it but I, I will I will honestly say this: um, my life was enriched by being the academic dean. Uh, it was a really it was a growing experience for me. I wouldn't trade it. Um, I, I I did enjoy a lot of dimensions of it, and I'm glad I'm done. Well, delighted to be here with you. We are going to do a couple of different things over this weekend, but they're all focusing on the book of Psalms. Now, in, um, in the first two lessons, we're going to go very slowly. This evening and tomorrow morning in the first hour, we're going to take two hours just to study Psalm 1. And we're not going to cover the whole of Psalm 1. We'll just get most of it. But we're going to spend two hours on one psalm. Conversely, on Sunday morning, I'm going to take about 30 to 40 minutes. And we're going to do the entire book of Psalms, 1 to 150. <laughs> so sometimes we're going to be moving slowly. And for the English teachers out there, you notice I didn't say slow. I'm old school. I still believe in adverbs. Um, I know that they're gone from our culture, but I still like adverbs. They're friendly. So we're, uh, um, we're going to go rather slowly, but then we're going to go fastly. <laughs> I, I guess if we can say fast and not fastly, we, it's probably okay to say slow and not slowly. I don't know, but there's, there's still something... Some purist in me, but at any rate, we're going to go very fast on Sunday morning, so bring your spiritual sneakers. Now, we do have one more lesson, and that is our second lesson tomorrow morning, and we're going to do something different. Um, if you just turn in your Bible for a moment to any place other than chapter 15 in the book of Exodus, just turn to any place in the book of Exodus and look at how the page is laid out in your Bible. And uh, once you just see how your page is laid out in your Bible in the book of Exodus, turn to anywhere in the book of Psalms. And when you when you turn anywhere in the book of Psalms, you're just going to notice that the page is laid out differently in the Psalms as opposed to Exodus. Why? Well, we're going to take a lesson to talk about why we're going to study Hebrew poetry. What makes a poem a poem? How do poets speak? Because if we don't understand how they speak, we don't always get what it is that they're saying. So we're going to study things like 
the colon and the line and the strophe and the stanza and parallelism. Uh, and along the way, we're going to study some psalms like Psalm 29 and Psalm 139. So we'll be studying some psalms, but I want you to leave that lesson uh, saying the book of Psalms is my friend. I get why stuff's indented once and stuff's indented twice. And why is there extra space between verses three and four? What What is all of that? We're going to make sense out of that for you so that your reading of the Psalms will be richer. As you as you read with more understanding, you'll read with a greater richness. But that's all for later. Uh, for this evening, we're going to start our study of Psalm uh, 1. Now, it's some somewhere along the line, uh, I've preached here enough that we've probably talked. I go, how many of you go back to the Environmental Center? We got a pretty good crew. I, I love the Environmental Center. I mean, I love being like above all the trees when you look out the window. That was just like totally a cool place to preach. Um, uh, my, I dare say, I don't remember, but I dare say we'd be bursting at the seams if we were to try to be there right now tonight with this number. So, it, it, you know, everything is everything's good for a season. And uh, when the season is over, it's good to let it go and move on into the next season of life, uh, which you have done. You also outgrew the shark. Um and if that doesn't make any sense, ask somebody who laughed and they'll tell you about the shark. But I've probably talked about the children's catechism. And, um, uh, you know, who made you? What else did God make? Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Um, how can you glorify God? By loving him and keeping his commandments. Why should you glorify God? Because he... Made me and takes care of me. I grew up with a lot of Catholic friends and I always thought Catholic catechism. I didn't know that anybody but Catholics used catechism. Catechism is just a question and answer way of teaching the basics of the faith. Well, when we were using this children's catechism with our kids, I remember with our second son, Evan, uh, one of the questions is, in what a state did God create our first parents? And uh, that's been edited, by the way. They got rid of the word estate, and they changed it to condition. That's a good edit. But back in the day, when we were old school, it was in what estate did God create our first parents? And I remember Evan quizzically saying, I don't know, was it Maryland? (laughs) Now, you know where we were living at the time. He was maybe like two, two and a quarter. And so he he heard in what state? He only knew one state, Maryland. And uh, but in what condition did God create our first parents? Anybody know the answer to that question? Two H words. Uh, Sin that doesn't start with H, but you're close. Two H words. Holy and happy. God made us holy and happy. And after we rebelled against God, instead of being holy and happy, we became sinful and miserable. Holiness and happiness go together and sin and misery go together. Before we sinned in the garden in the original state, we were perfectly holy and perfectly happy. And in heaven, we're going to be perfectly holy and perfectly happy. Sin and misery is characteristic of this life. Now, how many of you want to be more sinful? How many of you want to be more miserable? No, because God has put our original created state in our hearts and he's put our our glorious state in our hearts so that there's a longing to experience more holiness and more happiness. Well, God in his great mercy has given us an instruction manual. It's called the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is first and foremost a manual to teach us how to live a life that is a happy life and a holy life more and more while we anticipate the perfection of that happy and holy life uh, in the life to come. How do I know that? Well, because I've studied Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is part of a, um, a, a two-fold introduction to the book of Psalms. Um, look at Psalm 3. 
And do you notice that Psalm 3 is of David? In the title. And by the way, those, um, we'll throw in a lot of little tidbits along the way, but those titles are part of the Hebrew text. If we were reading these Psalms in Hebrew, that title would be verse 1. Uh, whereas they're not counted in the verses in English, which may lead you to believe that it's kind of like the modern editor when, you know, the modern editor puts in the parable of the sower, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But those little titles are part of the original Hebrew text. Um, English just doesn't count them. And so we might think of them, but they're they're part of God's word. Psalm three of David, Psalm four of David, Psalm five of David, Psalm six of David, Psalm seven. Of David. Enough. Jump back and go to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. What don't you see at the beginning of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2? No, of David. We call these orphan psalms. Uh, they have no title. Like orphans have no parents, these psalms have no titles, and so we call them orphan psalms. That fact in and of itself separates Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 from the rest of the psalms that follow. But there are also a couple of things that tie these two psalms together. For example, notice the first word in the first verse of Psalm 1. What is it? Blessed. Notice the first word in the last verse of Psalm 2. What's that word? Blessed. Um, Hebrew authors often tied things together by repeating material at the beginning of one unit and the end of the other unit to say this stuff hangs together. Now, repetition is a key device that is used in the Hebrew Bible. When we were taught to write, our English teachers said, don't repeat your vocabulary or what you write will be, what's the B word? Boring. Well, Hebrew teachers taught their kids, repeat your vocabulary. How else will anybody get the main point? So repetition is really a key component in Hebrew literature. And so blessed and blessed ties one and two together. Uh, Notice also how Psalm 1 ends. It talks about the way of the wicked perishing. Way perishing. Look at how Psalm 2 ends. Lest you perish on your way. Another repetition. End of Psalm 1, way perish. End of Psalm 2, way perish. Another way of tying these two psalms together. Now we can see these kinds of things even if we're reading in translation. But there are other things that we can't see unless we're reading in Hebrew. For example, in Psalm 1, righteous people are meditating on the word of God. So that is different They're the identical word. Just a number of... I'm just illustrating for you two things. Since one and two are orphans, they're set apart from three and following. And then there are all these other devices that hold one and two together. The Holy Spirit put these two psalms up front as an introduction to the book of Psalms. And Psalm 1 gives us the purpose of the book. Why did the Holy Spirit give us the book of Psalms? Uh, I think often we think, well, it's kind of like we have the Trinity hymnal. Israel had the, the Psalms. And certainly a lot of the Psalms were originally written to be sung and they were sung in public worship. Um, but I, I doubt that that's the case with all of them. I doubt that anybody sang 119 on in the Sunday night church service back in the day. Um, and I don't think the whole book was put together in the end by the Holy Spirit as a hymnal. Tomorrow we're going to see why I don't think that. But I think it was put together 
as an instruction manual. An instruction manual that would enable us, I'm not sure why I'm having trouble with this thing, but an instruction manual that will enable us to live what kind of life? Two H's. Holy and happy. Let's put that in Jesus' language. Jesus said, I didn't come to harm you, to kill you, to destroy you. I came that you might have one thing. What is it? But what kind of life? Life in all of its abundance. Uh, let's, what, what does this abundant life look like? Well, it looks like a life that is holy and happy. See, Jesus is simply saying, I came in order to live and die and rise and, and ascend to my Father's right hand so that you might have a happy and a holy life growing in this life until you experience the perfection of it in the life to come. So we have two lessons. And in our first lesson tonight, we're going to look at the Psalms and the happy life. What's that mean? And then tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the Psalms and the holy life. You with me? Okay, let's read uh, Psalm 1. And I'm reading uh, this evening from the New International Version. Uh, part of the reason I'm reading from the New International Version is because I got a giant print edition of the NIV. <laughs> and uh, um, I used to wear the glasses that Mike has. And then I, I got these um, multifocal contact lenses. They're like bifocal contacts. And they're great. I don't have to wear the readers anymore. But there's a downside. I can't see as well up close, and I can't see as well far away. But, every, but, but you, kind of right in the middle, got you down. And especially when it gets night and the light goes down. So I like a giant print Bible. And some of you, when you get my age, you'll appreciate that. So Psalm 1. By the way, notice before Psalm 1, it says book 1, and then it says Psalms 1 to 41. That's tomorrow morning. We'll talk about that later. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word, which is truth. We pray that you would now sweeten that word in our hearts and in our mouths, that uh, all of us together might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, the Psalms and the happy life. We're going to just do two things here. Uh, first of all, we want to see how the poet paints a picture of, and I'm going to use the word that is in most of our translations, blessed, only I'm going to put it in the noun form, how the poet paints a picture of blessedness. How, a po how the poet paints a picture of blessedness. That's the first thing we want to look at. Now, blessed is not a word that we ordinarily use. Uh, you probably haven't used that word in the grocery line in a long, long time. It's just, so we got to talk about what blessedness means, because it's just like a, it's like a, and, and this word, by the way, is different than the word blessed. Like when we say, isn't she blessed? That's a different Hebrew word. That's why we accent it differently. We say blessed, not blessed. This is a different Hebrew word. Uh, and so what is this blessedness? Let's say two things about what blessedness is. First of all, blessedness is the opposite of perishing. 
It's the opposite of perishing. Now, notice in most of your translations, what is the first word in the poem? Blessed. What's the last word? Perish. Now, uh, that's not only true in the English text. That's also true in the Hebrew text. The English is reflecting the Hebrew at this point. The first word is blessed, and perishing is at which end of the poem? Starts with an O. The It's at the opposite end of the poem. That's not an accident. That's intentional. By putting these two words at opposite ends of the poem, the poet is telling us that they're not just at opposite ends in location, they're at opposite ends in meaning. Now, when remember the Hebrew, the old rabbi that said reading your Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil? They're, you're kind of missing a little bit of immediacy, right, unless you lift the veil. So from time to time, now, don't misunderstand me. You can read your Bible in English or in any other translation, and you can get the point. Uh, God's people have been reading the Bible in translation around the world for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they get the point. So it's not that God's word can't be translated. It can be. But if any of you are bilingual, you also know that when you go from one language to another, often something is lost along the way. And if you don't think that's the case, just try to tell somebody from another culture a joke. Jokes are hard to go from one culture to another. And so there are times when there are certain small things that are missing because we're reading in translation. That's okay. That's why I love Hebrew. Uh, the, the word for blessed starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the word for perishing starts with the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's not an accident. You can't get any further apart in the poem, first word to last word. You can't get any further apart in the alphabet, first letter to last letter. Unless you think that this is like a Hebrew professor's imagination being a little too fertile. Later we're going to look at Psalm 112. And after the initial hallelujah, the first word is blessed and the last word is perish. At least two poets have done this. What's the point? The point is that blessedness is the opposite of perishing. Now, that's only helpful if we know what? If we know what what means. No. Perish. To say that blessed is the opposite of perishing only helps us if we know what perishing means. And we may not. Because it's often, and it's just kind of naturally the case, that when we read the Bible and we encounter words, we fill those words with the definitions that we currently use. So, for example, if, um, if tomorrow at lunch you were to go down to the beach and gather uh, 25 people around you, and if you were to say to them, unless you believe in Jesus, you're going to perish, what do you mean by that? First of all, you're going to, starts with a D, die, and then you're going to go to hell. We don't want that H word. We like the happy and the holy. Okay, if we're happy and we're holy, we don't have to worry about the other H word. So, but that's how we use perish, to die and go to hell. And since that's the way we use it, when we read Psalm 1, and we think the way of the wicked will perish, we think it's talking about people dying in. But if we read the text closely, we have a little problem. Notice the text does not say that the wicked are going to die and go to hell. It doesn't say the wicked perish. What perishes? The way. And the way is a lifestyle. Lifestyles don't do what? They don't die. And they don't go to hell. So something else must be going on here. Turn for a moment to the very last verse of Psalm 112. And I can pretty much predict what you're going to read there. If you're reading an ESV, anybody with an ESV out there? Got some ESVers. Anybody with an NASB? 
NASB. Anybody with a New King James? Got some New King? Anybody with a real Bible? Anybody got the King? Anybody got the King out there? We got one King here. All right. Uh, my first Bible was the King. These translations are all going to have the word perish at the end, right? Only instead of saying the way of the wicked will perish, it's going to say something like the desires of the wicked will perish. Anybody have an NIV out there? What's the NIV say? It doesn't say perish, does it? The longings of the wicked come to nothing. Now, why did the NIV people translate this word for perish as come to nothing? Well, it's because that's what it means. And that's what it means also in Psalm 1. The lifestyle of the wicked leads you down a path that results in, what's the N word? That results in nothing. Now let's let's think about one thing in the psalm that reinforces that. The wicked in Psalm 1 are said to be like what? Chaff. Somebody tell me in one word what chaff is good for. There you go. The wicked are like chaff, good for the way, the lifestyle of the wicked amounts to nothing. See, now if that's the case, if perish means live a life that amounts to nothing, oh, now that's helpful to know what blessedness is. Because blessedness, the blessed life is going to be a life that amounts to something. And I know that every one of you, want to live a life that matters. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, my father passed away. And um, I can tell you this for sure. My father did not want on his tombstone, his life was good for nothing. He didn't, and neither do you. I know it. Why? Because God did not create you for nothing. He created you for something. And God hasn't redeemed you for nothing. He's redeemed you for something. That's life in all of its abundance, happy and holy. Show me somebody who gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror and says, I know why I'm here. I know the difference that I can make. There is a That's an abundant life. That's a happy life. That's a holy life. That's a blessed life. The opposite of perishing. Uh, A life of meaning. There's this book, the, uh, the What Driven Life. Why did that book sell so many copies? Because our culture is so hungry for what? Purpose. You see, we're, we're very good at knowing what to do. And we're very good at knowing how to do it. We're not so good at knowing why. The Bible answers those kinds of that why question for us. And uh, for all of us, we know what the, the big answer to that question is because we're Presbyterians. The big answer to the question as to why we're here is what? To glorify God. Let's get that and in there and enjoy him forever. That's true of all of us. But, you know, the way you have been shaped to glorify God and enjoy him is different than the way I have been shaped. You didn't have my parents. Uh, You didn't have my experiences. You had your own parents or not. You had your own positive experiences. You had your own negative experiences. And in the language of um, one singer, there are no mistakes, only lessons to be learned. If God is really sovereign, then there have been, from an ultimate perspective, there have been no mistakes in your life. Everything has been orchestrated to shape you into the person that you are. And if God wanted you to be in some other way, guess what? You would be. He has shaped you to live out life before him in a way that 
absolutely nobody else can. Um, Let's just think of this local church. Since Mike's the upfront guy, we tend to look at Mike as like the main man. And uh, I know that Mike is going to agree with what I'm going to say. Think of the lives that Mike can touch. Think of all of the lives that he can't possibly touch, but you can. See, God has shaped Mike to do certain things, and he's shaped you to do certain things, and a a life of blessedness is understanding who you are and why God has shaped you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, it's all part of his plan. Why he has shaped you the way you are so that you can do the things that he wants you to do that nobody else can do. Uh, Doubt me, just look around at each other's faces how many of them are alike. Not even identical twins are identical. Why not? Because God loves variety, shapes us all differently to lead that different blessed life. And so I trust that as you reflect on Psalm 1 uh, throughout the next week and weeks, that you'll be thinking more about how God has shaped me and what does God want me to do? Why am I the way I am? Uh, And how can God use me in a way that he can't use anybody else? That's the blessed life. Blessedness is the opposite of perishing. It's a, by the way, it's, it's a, it's a, a life that's like a tree. What's a tree good for? Starts with an S in general. Something. Shade. There's a Floridian for you. It produces what? It produces fruit. What's chaff produce? God didn't produce, God didn't create you, redeem you to produce nothing. He created you and redeemed you to produce something. And what you can produce, the person beside you can't produce. And so embrace. Embrace who you are. How much time have you spent in your life saying, if only? If only I were like her. If only I could do what he did, what he does. What difference would it make if you spent all that energy saying, I am who I am. What am I going to do with the person that God has shaped me to be? Focusing on what we are rather than on what we're not. Because guess what you can't do anything about? It's what you're not. But you can embrace who you are and live out that life. That's the blessed life. Now, so the first thing we've said in looking at this picture is that blessedness is a a, a uh, it's a, there's a picture of blessedness, and it's the opposite of perishing. Now, the second thing I want to say is really profound. Blessedness is the same thing as happiness. Uh, I love Hebrew. Hebrew is, I'd rather, if I had to give up everything except one course, I'd keep Hebrew. It's just what, it's the way God has wired me. It's who he shaped me to be. Um, won't take the time to tell you the whole story, but when I was just in brief, when I was converted coming out of high school, God just gave me a hunger to study the Old Testament. Wasn't part of my tradition because my tradition said that uh, the Old Testament is for the Jews over there. It's not for the Christians here. That was where I, so I never heard teaching or preaching from the Old Testament other than telling me what would happen to Israel in the future. So that's my tradition. So I get converted in this tradition, and God just gives me a deep hunger for studying the Old Testament. Go figure. Where'd that come from? It came from God. And so somebody said to me once, well, if you want to study the Old Testament, you've got to buy these commentaries by these two German guys called Kyle and Dalich. Don't worry, it's in English. So I buy these books, and there's this funny chicken scratch in it. It's called Hebrew. And I, I want to I want to at least be able like to sound the words out when I come to them. Yes. Uh, and so I go to one of my college professors. He had been a pastor and I figured if he had been a pastor, he knew Hebrew. That was probably a mistake. 
But uh, he said, well, I, I know enough Hebrew that I, could, I can teach you the basics. Well, in God's providence, that summer before we started that class, a visiting professor arrived on campus. And guess what he had just completed his doctoral studies in? Hebrew. And when he found out that there were a few students who wanted to study Hebrew, he took us under his wing. And before I graduated, I probably had about 25 hours of undergrad Hebrew. I love Hebrew. I'm telling you that for a reason. What is it? Oh, yeah, I remember. It is Friday night, 8 o'clock. Um, what, what, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ha- I'm getting around to happiness. Okay, so I have, all, I have, the, the, I have the, the state-of-the-art dictionaries for the study of the Hebrew Bible. Like when I tell my students to buy a dictionary, it's like this one little dictionary for like $50. I have this one set of dictionaries. It's about seven volumes, and each volume is probably like $175. And I've got another dictionary that's about six volumes, and each of those is over $200 a piece. I mean, this is really the, this is the high-powered state. So I look up this Hebrew word in these big, high-powered dictionaries. What does this Hebrew word ashray mean? Guess what these big dictionaries tell me it means? It means happiness. Yeah. I paid $1,200 for them to tell me it means happy. Be happy. Happy's a great word. My first dog's name was happy. We had happy for about two days because my sister wasn't. And she was the apple of my dad's eye. I said my father passed away. My sister's taking it much harder than my mother is uh, because they had uh, such a wonderful father-daughter uh, relationship. She loved my dad. She did not love Happy, and Happy left. My dad loved my do- my, his daughter more than he loved Happy. Uh, but at any rate, it's the same as happiness, but not the way we normally use it. When we use happy, we use it kind of as a light term, a purely emotional term. But if you look up happy in a dictionary, it's really a rather rich term. Among other things, happy can mean experiencing well-being in every area of life. Now, how many of you want to be happy? Well-being in every area of life. That's what is meant by happiness. That's how God created you. You were well in every area of life. You were well physically, emotionally, relationally, uh, financially. In heaven, you're going to be well in every area of life. We're living between the times. None of us are perfectly well. Some of us are not well in body. Some of us are well in body, but not in spirit. Some of us are well in our minds and emotions and our bodies, but relationally, things are a wreck. Some of us have it pretty much together in those areas, but financially, we're not well off. Uh, And so none of us are ashray in total. But we all have a longing inside to be more ashray, because that's what God created us for, and that's what God has redeemed us for, and that's what the book of Psalms is about, this ashray this blessed life well-being. Let's turn to Psalm 112. Psalm 112, after the initial hallelujah, has some things in common with Psalm 1. After praise the Lord, notice it says, blessed is the man who, just like Psalm 1, who fears the Lord, who delights in his commands. Here, the, the blessed man is delighting in the commands. In Psalm 1, the blessed man is delighting in the law of God. It's all the same thing. These are very similar. But Psalm 112 is going to put some more color in this picture of blessedness as happiness. It's going to detail some of it. For example, notice in verse 2, what's this blessed man's life like? His children will be mighty in the land. Well-being in his family. Uh, Beginning of verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, well-being in his finances. Second half of verse 3, his righteousness endures forever, well-being in his spirituality. 
Verse 4, even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Uh, dropping down to verse 7, he will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord, well-being in his emotions. See, this is ashray, blessedness, happiness in the sense of well-being in every area of life. Flip over to Psalm 144. In in verse 11, the psalmist says, Deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies and whose right hands are deceitful. Well, I wonder what this fellow has in mind. When God delivers him, what does he anticipate his life will look like? Let's look at the next verses. When God delivers me, then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants and our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace well-being in family. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by ten thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads, well-being in finance. There will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets, well-being in the social order. Now notice verse 15. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So you see, this blessedness, this ashray, it, it, this, this picture of blessedness is um, uh, the opposite of perishing. It's a life that makes a difference, a life that's going somewhere, a life that counts, a life that produces fruit. And it's the same as happiness, happiness in the sense of well-being in every area of life. So when we're looking at the Psalms and the happy life, Psalm 1 is teaching us that the book of Psalms is given to us so that we can experience more of this blessedness. It it paints a picture of blessedness. And more briefly, in the remaining minutes, it does something else. It gives us a promise of success. A promise of success. The, The promise is the point of this whole psalm. Uh, Hebrew poets used structure. They used form to communicate meaning. And uh, one thing they would do is something like um, an example of it, an illustration of it might be a modern portrait. You have the frame, and then inside the frame you have the mat. But what you're most interested in is the picture and the the frame and the mat they all are important but um, they they serve among other things to focus your attention and Hebrew poets did that same kind of thing what's the R word what would they do they would repeat they would repeat stuff on the outside uh, and then they would repeat stuff on the inside to focus your attention on the center Look, for example, at um, verse 1. There we get words like um, sinners and wicked, or the other order, wicked and sinners. We'll just keep it at that. You see wicked and sinners? Oh, so thank you. I'm back to Psalm 1. Yeah, back to Psalm 1. You mean you can't read my mind? Are we married? Okay, Psalm 1, verse 1, wicked and sinners. Drop down to verse 5, wicked and sinners. You see that? That's like the frame. Now let's move in a panel. In verse 2, what are, I'm sorry, in verse 3, what are the righteous like? They're like a tree. Uh, verse 4, what are the wicked like? They're like chaff. See the repetition? Like a tree, like chaff. Now we come right to the very center of the poem, which unfortunately is divided by a verse division. But the very center of the poem, the, the poetic line at the heart is, whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. Now keep in mind, those 
those verse numbers are not original. They were added to the text about 1200 A.D., way after the text. And the guy who added them did so while riding on a horse. And every once in a while when he was putting a number in, the horse would buck and it would just slip and get in the wrong place. And that's what happened here. This number four really splits the center poetic line in half. The center of the poem is whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. See, all I want to say is this promise is right at the very heart. It's the point of the poem. And the point is success. If I were king of translators, and I'm not, I wouldn't use the word prosper here. Because if I say to you, he's prosperous, what do you think immediately? Money, finances. And as we've seen, that's part of it, right? But that's not the whole of it. If I say to you, she's successful, what do you have to ask me? At what? She could be successful as a mom. She could be successful as a, uh, a teacher. She could be successful as an athlete. In other words, our word prosper is, starts with an N, N-A-R, narrow. Our word success is broad. And the Hebrew word is broad. I'll give you one example. It's the well-known example in Isaiah 55:11. Turn to Isaiah 55:11. It's that text where God is talking about his word and how his word um, comes down from heaven like rain, and it doesn't fall on the ground without accomplishing exactly what God sent it to accomplish. You know the text, Isaiah 55:11. Does anybody have in their translation the word succeed there? Or prosper? You have succeed? What's your translation? The, the ESV and the NASB both have succeed. Guess what that Hebrew word is in relationship to the word in Psalm 1 that's translated prosper? Same word. Exact same word. Uh, in, and, and in other words, the, the point of this poem is that in whatever you do, you'll succeed. And Isaiah 55:11 gives us a very simple definition of biblical success. God is successful because he sends his word with a goal in mind. And he reaches the goal. That's all success is. Success is just having a goal and reaching it. No more, no less. Um, the guy who did the lights, what's his name? Not the electrician, but the, the old school electrician. Thank you, Edison. Uh, Edison was successful. He had 999 defeats. Not failures, defeats. Because after 999, what did he do? He tried one more time, the light went on. See, we have many defeats along the way in life. It's just part of living. Uh, but we don't fail until we choose not to throw the switch one more time. And if you make that choice at times in life, that's okay. Uh, if you're beating your head against a wall and you're getting bruised, but there's like no indentation on the wall, what might be a good course of action? Stop. Stop. We don't always have to keep going. It's fine to say I tried it and I. That's okay. But notice what this psalm is saying. It says whatever he does succeeds. Whoa. It doesn't say many things will succeed. Most things will succeed. All but one will succeed. Whatever he does succeeds. That's God's rule for the righteous. Now, there are apparent exceptions in life. Yes or yes? Uh, think of Psalm uh, 73, where the psalmist said, Surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I almost gave up when I considered what? When I considered the prosperity of the wicked. That almost made me give up my faith. Why? Because I read Psalm 1. 
And Psalm 1 said, whatever you do succeeds, whatever they do fails. And I looked around at the real world and I say, God, I read your word and I look at the world. I sure can't put these two things together. God says, that's why I called you to walk by faith and not by sight. Turn to Jeremiah 12. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Jeremiah is praying, and he says, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. I got a bone to pick with you, is what he's saying. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? See, Jeremiah is saying, God, I read Psalm 1. And I look at the world around me, and I just at times can't put the word and the world together. The point that I want to make here is that success is the rule. Success is what we should expect. If success were not the rule, if the rule in God's word is this, wicked people prosper and righteous people don't, would Jeremiah have a bone to pick with God? No, the only reason why he's upset, the only reason why the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, I almost gave up my faith, is because they knew the rule. And yes, there are exceptions. As my former colleague Steve Brown would say, deal with it. It's part of life. But don't make the exception the rule. Don't begin to live with the notion that what the church tries to do fails. Because the world is bigger and better than we are. Um, I forget the quote from um, uh, Eugene Peterson that Mike read, but it was this. The, the gist of it was that God is much, God is much, much bigger and his kingdom encompasses everything. Don't, don't make the exception the rule so that you live expecting to fail. Live with the expectation that you'll succeed. Now that's risky. Because how many of us just love to be disappointed in life? We don't. It's much more comfortable. You, you know, we say... It is better to, yeah, we say that, but I'm, I'm not, that's, that's not at all what I'm thinking. It's better to try and fail than to never have tried. We say that, right? We don't believe it. What we really believe is it's better to not try so that we don't have to be disappointed than it is to try and fail. I'm, I run risks all the time. If I'm a thousand percent sure that that is going to work out the way I think it is, I'll run that risk any day. So, thank you. See, I'm a Presbyterian. That's why when we do something as Presbyterians, you know, we form a study committee, and after the study committee makes sure this is the best thing to do, we submit it to another committee to study the report of the study committee so that we make, you know, you know what I'm saying? In other words, we, we're not the denomination that is really known as those who walk by. We, we tend to walk by, by sight. It's, in, in, other, in other words, it's risky. It's risky to live the expectation, and it's rich. It's part of the blessed life. Uh, you can't win big in the stock market if you don't run the risk. But, of course, the more you stand to win, the more you stand to, which is why some of us like me, you know, we buy CDs, <laughs> you know, you, you you can make something. It's like 0.33%. Yeah, you know. Okay, you get the point. 
Of course, in the in the Bible, what's the biggest story? What's the biggest Old Testament exception to the rule? What's his name? Job. Uh, except, you see, Job was Job was righteous and prosperous at the beginning. And in the end, Job was also what? Righteous and prosperous. You see, he, he just went through this big dip along the way when he didn't quit. He persevered and experienced that double blessedness on the other side. Well, let me uh, let me conclude with a, a story and um, then we'll come back tomorrow and look at the holy side. Um, the 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 prayer of Jabez guy. Bruce Wilkerson. Yes. I don't know why I have a mental block. Not David Wilkinson. No, that's crossing the switchblade. Bruce Wilkerson. Yes. Do I have it right? The guy that wrote Prayer of Jabez. Uh, he was teaching for the, for the first time at a Christian college out on the West Coast. And um, when he was teaching out there, he was at the first uh, registration. This is back in the day before you registered online. Uh, we don't have registration day anymore, but you remember registration day, the gymnasium, all the tables going to, you know. He's out there milling with the students, and senior member of the um, Bible department comes up to him a, a bit miffed because um, author of the prayer of Jabez, B.W., um, he's, he gets section two of this really big Bible class, freshman Bible class. Uh, they have to divide it up into sections. He gets section two, the best and the brightest. This other older guy thinks he ought to get section two. B.W. says, um, I'm just you know, doing what they tell me to do. But he was also teaching section one, which is just an ordinary section. Midway through the year, he's walking across campus with the dean going to a faculty meeting. The dean says, you know, do you enjoy teaching here? Yeah, I love it. What's your favorite thing that you teach? Section two in the Bible class. The dean looked at him and said, we we canceled that program about five years ago. We don't do that anymore. He was flabbergasted. He went back to his room and he looked at the papers, the midterm papers that had just been turned in for Section 2, quantity and quality. He looked at the papers that were turned in for Section 1, quantity and quality. And he said, you know, there's really only one difference between Section 2 and Section 1. What was the only difference? What's that? No. Whose expectation? His expectation of them. These were the best and the brightest, and so he expected. And what did he get? These were the average, and he expected, and what did he get? It just seems to be a principle that God has woven into the fabric of the world that it is often the case. Notice how careful I'm being. Not always. It's often the case that we experience what we expect to experience. And through Psalm 1, God invites us to live a blessed life, which can be risky at times because it means living with great expectations. I ought to write a book with that title. Think that would be a good title for a book? Great Expectations. I I think that would be a good title. Um, May God grant us grace to have ears to hear what he says to us through Psalm 1. Uh, We've just begun, uh, and we see that Psalm 1 teaches us that the book of Psalms is a a manual for us to live a blessed life, and half of that blessedness is happy in the sense of not perishing, living a life that matters, that means something, that makes a difference, that bears fruit, each of us, in a unique way. And it's a life of well-being in every area of life. None of us have it perfectly but we all have it to a degree because we're here. We're all richly blessed. Proof, we're here. But none of us are as blessed as we're going to be. We are blessed now, and there's more of that to come, both in this life and in the life to come as we walk by faith, uh, based on the grace of God that is so richly ours uh, in Christ. Let's pray together. 
Uh, Father, we bless your name uh, as the one who has planned from all eternity for us as his children to live a blessed life. Uh, We bless you, uh, Son of God, who in the fullness of time, at just the right time, came and lived a perfect life of righteousness in our place and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, was raised for our justification, ascended to the Father's right hand to pray for us and send the Holy Spirit. We bless you, Spirit of God, who takes the Word and applies it to our hearts and who empowers us to trust that Word and to live out that Word in our day-to-day experiences. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, from whom all blessings flow, we bless you as our Creator and as our Redeemer. Uh, And we trust you for uh, a good remainder of the evening, for refreshment uh, through the dark of the night, and for a wonderful privilege and opportunity to come and study your word together again in the morning. Amen. Glad you could be here.